Welcome to the Professional Writer Podcast, episode number 23, dealing with rants, ridicule, and crushing criticism. I'm your host, Laura Christensen, and I'm here to help you confidently plan, launch, and grow your writing-related business. You'll find the show notes for today's episode at bloggingbistro.com. A writer I know who is visually impaired was told by someone, I would never read a novel with a visually impaired main character because I would assume that the author had an agenda. I was wondering, what did this person expect the writer to do? How did this person expect this writer to respond? To not write a novel that features a visually impaired person just because one prospective reader might feel offended by what they consider the writer's agenda? let's think about this. You could fill in the blank with pretty much any topic here. So I'm going to give you some examples. Let's try this together. Think about a topic or a theme that's close to your heart, one that you have really strong and well-researched opinions about. Then imagine someone is saying this to you about your topic. I would never read a book with a fill in the blank main character because I would assume the author had an agenda. If you're a nonfiction writer, try it this way. I would never read a book about fill in the name of the topic because I would assume the author had an agenda. So I'm going to plug in some specific words and phrases here to kind of give you a little bit better idea of what I'm talking about. I'm going to start by putting in the word adopted or adoption because that was my first brand as an author. I wrote books for prospective adoptive parents. So that's a theme that is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm imagining someone saying to me, I would never read a book with an adopted main character because I would assume the author had an agenda. Or, in my case, my book was nonfiction, I would never read a book about adoption because I would assume the author had an agenda. Okay, let's try this with another word, like divorce. I would never read a book with a divorced main character because I would assume the author had an agenda. Or, I would never read a book about divorce because I would assume the author had an agenda. Now let's try it with LGBT. I would never read a book with an LGBT main character because I would assume the author had an agenda. Or, nonfiction, I would never read a book about LGBT because I would assume the author had an agenda. Now let's try one more here, and then I think you're getting the idea, and you can insert your own word or phrase there that makes most sense to you and whatever it is that you are writing about. And this topic is diabetic or diabetes. I would never read a book with a diabetic main character because I would assume the author had an agenda. Or for nonfiction writers, I would never read a book about diabetes because I would assume the author had an agenda. I'm thinking that all authors have some sort of an agenda. In a novel, for example, they might be gently trying to help readers understand what it's like to be visually impaired or adopted or divorced or LGBT or diabetic or whatever. I recently read a historical novel set in 1776 America. It was told from the point of view of a lady's maid. This maid was not a slave. She was a white orphan who had gone into service as a young girl, and she really had no opportunities in life other than being an unpaid servant to a really mean, rich, snobby society woman. In a sense, this girl was a slave. 
an indentured servant at the very best. And the story got me to thinking about the people of many colors who have either been forced into slave labor or who immigrated to my country with high hopes for a better life, and then they discovered that the only jobs available to them involved hard labor with the wages that were barely enough to feed one person, no less an entire family, or those orphaned and poverty-stricken who had no other options in life but to be servants. And the way my nation was built on the backs of these strong, determined people. If I had assumed that the author of that book would have had an agenda, I would have missed out on all this. The novel helped me to appreciate people who were, and still are, in service. As writers and business owners and leaders, we're going to get discouraging negative feedback and complaints from people who disagree with our stance on the topics that we write about. We're going to get complaints from subscribers who think that our emails are too long or too short. We're going to hear from readers of our novels who find the protagonist unlikable, or they don't like the color of a character's skin, or their accent, or they think the plot is boring. What are we supposed to do when people complain? How can we handle complaints like grown-ups? This is something I wrestle with too, friends, because like every business owner, I also get complaints. I recall recently, bright and early, one Monday morning, right after I had sent out my weekly email to my subscribers, letting them know about the content of my latest podcast episode, I received this email, and I'm going to read it to you verbatim. This person wrote, I'm not interested in podcasts. Sometimes with videos, there's a script provided giving the entire content in print. Or videos might have closed captioning. I am hearing impaired. I can scan text for content I need, but podcasts are so time-consuming. And that was it. There was no Dear Laura salutation. There was no signature at the end. Just an anonymous message, except for the sender's email address, that was sent from the contact form on my website. I received this message on the heels of publishing a new podcast episode, just like I've done every Monday morning for months. It was an episode that I spent at least eight hours planning crafting, recording, editing, writing the transcript for, writing the show notes for, designing promotional graphics, writing and scheduling social media posts, writing an email for the subscribers on my email list. And granted, this complaint was mild, and it wasn't even directed specifically at me, except in kind of a roundabout, passive-aggressive sort of way. So I read it again, and reading between the lines... I rewrote this person's complaint in my head, and here is how I interpreted it. I don't like listening to podcasts because I'm hearing impaired. Because podcasts are geared for auditory learning, they don't work for me. I'm not willing to carve time out of my day for doing something that doesn't appeal to me in the first place. And then I rewrote it again in my head, and this time I was reading way, way between the lines. And I sensed this person asking, why don't you make it easier on me? Provide a transcript of your podcast, or better yet, axe the podcast altogether and stick with blogging. I could be interpreting this person's complaint incorrectly, but a myriad of thoughts and emotions surfaced as I pondered this person's complaint. (laughs) First of all, I thought, why, first thing on a Monday morning, did this person feel compelled to let me know that they're not interested in podcasts? Did they think that their missive is going to be a cheerful beginning to my week? And they don't listen to my podcast in the first place, so why do they feel compelled to let me know that? And then I asked myself, what is their expectation here? 
are they attempting to guilt trip me into responding? Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I had no idea that anyone in my audience wouldn't be interested in podcasts. I'm going to immediately delete every episode and I promise I will never podcast again as long as I live. And then I asked myself, well, what is it that they want me to learn from their complaint? They stated that they're hearing impaired and that they prefer to scan a transcript for the information that they need. So it appears that they want me to be sensitive to the needs of the hearing impaired members of my audience. Now here's how I responded to this person, and I would love your feedback on whether you think I took the right approach or what you think I could have done differently. So I wrote back hi and I inserted their name. Thanks for contacting me. I agree that business owners need to reach out to their audience through multiple mediums, including articles or blog posts, video and audio. That's why I have hundreds of blog posts on my blog for people who learn best through reading, as well as several videos and my podcast. On the podcast, I alternate between interviews with guests and tutorial style posts. I include written transcripts for almost all of my self-hosted podcast episodes because I know that some people prefer reading or are hearing impaired. In this era, our readers and clients consume content in so many ways, and each of us has our own preference. I'm committed to being an example to my audience of the multiple ways a business owner can reach out to and connect with their audience. Even though I was feeling emotional when I wrote that response, I did my best to remove the emotion and the defensive language, and I kept it as professional and neutral as I was capable of doing in the moment. And then I did a brain dump of all my swirling emotions and thoughts. I did my brain dump first verbally with my husband, and secondly, I did it on paper, or rather on my computer. And parts of my brain dump became what you're listening to right now as this podcast episode. But here's the thing, I didn't immediately record my brain dump. I wrote it all out and then I closed the file and I let it sit for three days without even looking at it. For me, three days or 72 hours is usually enough time to let my emotions simmer down and to give me a more objective perspective when I open the file again and begin editing it. In this case, I discovered that 72 hours was not nearly enough time. I had done so much emotional baggage dumping on paper, not just about this person's mild criticism, but about the exceedingly mean-spirited negative comments I've been seeing constantly on social media and in the news. And this person's mild rant had somehow alerted my brain that it needed to process a lot of pandemic-related emotions. So I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. I felt overwhelmed by the amount of writing I generated. So I set it aside for a full month and I'm just now revisiting it. I know that I still don't have this whole thing figured out, but I think that I'm far enough along in the process that I can share it with you. So I'm structuring this next section of the episode as action steps, because I don't want you to just sit back and take passive action. In other words, I don't want you to just listen to this episode or read the transcript and not do anything with it. I suspect that you also deal with reader complaints and client criticisms. So I want to give you some practical tips for handling reader complaints that you can take to heart and put into action. Tip number one, you can't please everyone and you shouldn't try to. 
some of your readers, your listeners, your viewers, your subscribers will not be a good fit for what you're offering. In the case of my former subscriber who is hearing impaired, I did a little sleuthing inside my email system and I learned that this person had signed up for my list so that they could get one of my freebies. And I have lots of different freebies. I think I have about nine different freebies that I send out to subscribers. This person likely never visited my website to see the kinds of services that my company offers. They probably never viewed the show notes of one of my podcast episodes because if they had, they would have discovered that many of my episodes do include full written transcripts. This person pre-decided that they don't like one aspect of the way I do business. And in that moment, they decided not to become my client. When I retooled the Blogging Bistro brand in late 2019 to support entrepreneurs who are planning and growing a writing-related business, as part of that rebrand, I made a commitment to podcast every week for a year. And when I did that, I knew that I would lose a significant chunk of my subscribers and my blog readers. Why? Well, because people who had been used to getting blog posts from me for 13 years were suddenly going to be receiving my content packaged in a different format. And I knew that that would make some of them uncomfortable and uninterested. When I was primarily blogging, my hearing impaired subscriber was a better fit for what I had to offer. But now that I've transitioned to primarily podcasting, this person is no longer part of my ideal target audience. In the coaching I do with my clients, many of them get distressed when someone unsubscribes from their email list or unfollows them on social media or doesn't participate in their Facebook group. But think about it. Have you ever subscribed to someone's email list or joined their Facebook group and in the first few weeks or even months, you avidly soak up every tidbit that this person has to offer. You like their posts, you comment on their posts, but then after a while, you either lose interest or maybe the person's content starts to feel kind of stale or repetitious, or in many cases, it starts to feel overly salesy, or maybe your own brand or business shifts and you no longer need their services. We have so many choices about how we spend our leisure and our learning time. And when people choose to unfollow us, we don't need to chase after them and demand to know why. And we don't need to have our feelings hurt either. Because there are so many people out there who are a good fit for what you have to offer. You don't need to feel guilty or as if you've done something wrong when people stop following you. All of us are going to do things, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that cause others to decide that they don't want to hang out with us. They don't want to read our blog posts. They don't want to watch our videos or listen to our podcasts or buy our books or become our clients. And we need to attempt to become comfortable with this. I know it feels like personal rejection, but really it is not personal. For you as a business owner, it's more about being in tune with your ideal audience and discovering how you can serve them and then serving them consistently over time. If you're struggling with this, I recommend that you go back and listen to episode number 14, which is titled 
everyone's favorite radio station. Are you tuned in? This is a very short five-minute episode where I'll help you discover what your audience is looking for and how creating what's in it for me content is going to set your business up for success. And I will include a link to episode number 14 in the show notes over at bloggingbistro.com. If you're feeling ready to find your ideal target audience, you may be a little bit unclear on exactly who that person is, but you want to find out what makes this person tick. I invite you to check out my on-demand audio training and workbook where I will guide you through a series of questions that are going to help you discover and get to know your reader better than you ever imagined possible. And again, I'll put a link to the training for that in the show notes for episode number 23 at bloggingbistro.com. Next week in episode 24, we're going to explore a different aspect of this topic. I'll acquaint you with three ways that your ideal audience typically engages with you, and I'll share why I routinely delete thousands of subscribers from my own email list, and I'll explain why regular list cleaning is a good idea and how you can go about doing that. So let's go back and recap. Tip number one for responding to rants, ridicule, and crushing criticism is you can't please everyone. So don't try to. Find your ideal audience and put your energy into connecting with them. Tip number two, don't allow thoughtless comments by the naysayers discourage you or stop you from doing what you know you're called to do. You're going to make mistakes. You are going to offend people. People are going to misunderstand you. I have met so many writers who spend 10 or even 20 years working on their novel, but they never get it published because they're afraid of how readers will react to it. They allow fear to keep them from fulfilling their calling or their lifelong dream. As a longtime business owner, I deal with this fear every single day. And sometimes I get so discouraged that I feel like giving up. But one of the things that keeps me going is that I know that every single writer faces this same fear. And the ones who are successful, and I don't define success by how much money you make off your writing, but by how you are helping to transform the lives of your readers. Every successful writer keeps going and they always do the best work that they're capable of doing. They understand that making mistakes and being misunderstood and feeling discouraged come with the territory. They actively seek to work through those feelings and they consistently and conscientiously invest their time into understanding their audience's needs and into serving them. If you want to take a deeper dive into this topic, here are two episodes I recommend that you listen to. Episode number three, titled Going All In, is going to help you figure out what you want to become known for and go all in on generously serving your audience. And episode number nine, titled Being True to Yourself, will help you learn how replacing you need to with you love to is going to revolutionize your business. Tip number three, when someone complains or criticizes or rants or gives your work a one-star review, resist the urge to retaliate. Give yourself at least 24 hours to release the emotions around the complaint so that when you respond, if you respond, you're going to feel confident that you can be calm and rational rather than emotional and reactive. I see reactionary behavior happening constantly, and I know that I'm prone to do it myself. 
this is an area where I see a great deal of harm being done, not only by everyday folks who use social media, but all the way up to the most powerful political figures in the world. Instead of acknowledging opposing viewpoints, people jump straight to attacking someone's character or shaming them. And these attacks have an alarmist tone, and they often make sweeping generalizations about a group based on the words or actions of a small number of representatives of that group. One example that comes to mind happened in an interdenominational Bible study group that my husband was in. His group had 16 people in it, and 13 of them attended all different churches or no church at all. So his group was this hodgepodge of people from different walks of life, different political views, and significantly different theological and doctrinal stances. One person in my husband's group called Democrats Democrats, implying that everyone who leaned toward that political party is evil, literally demon-possessed, and is not to be acknowledged or taken seriously. We can't read each other's hearts, friends. And it grieves me so much when people are so resolute about their viewpoint that they aren't even willing to entertain the possibility that there could be lovely, thoughtful people who think the exact opposite of them and who feel just as strongly about their own convictions. Rather than stooping to name-calling, which I have never seen result in a positive outcome, what if this person had said, Tell me about your political views. How did you come to that point of view? You can disagree fiercely with someone and still engage in fruitful conversation. And if you want to hear more on this topic, I recommend a panel discussion that I listened to recently called A Conversation About Race, Grace, and Forgiveness. And the members of the panel were Patricia Raybon, Mark Galley, Esau Macaulay, and Joyce Dinkins. That's on YouTube, and I'll leave a link in the show notes at bloggingbistro.com. Highly recommend listening to that panel discussion. If, like me, you know that you have a tendency to self-righteously react and retaliate when you feel as if your positions are being attacked, you may want to listen to episode number 10 of this podcast. The title is Moving from Self-Focused to Self-Forgetful. After I drafted this episode that you're listening to right now, I came across a blog post by literary agent Rochelle Gardner, who wrote an article called Should Authors Stay in Their Lane for the Books and Such blog. Again, I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Rochelle's post got me thinking more deeply about this issue. So some of what I'm going to be sharing with you was inspired by her post. Rochelle addressed the question of hot-button social issues that are being publicly discussed, that is, issues that are unrelated to your brand or your platform or the writing that you typically do, but issues that you feel compelled to address. Think in terms of a current social issue that sets your pulse racing. I'll just throw out a couple here. Should people be mandated to wear face masks in public during the COVID-19 pandemic? Should schools be reopened for in-person classes? Is COVID-19 a health emergency or a hoax? If you're anything like me and you spot a social media post on any of these topics, you might feel an almost overwhelming urge to make your opinion known. What I do that helps me to rein in my reactionary tendencies is to ask myself, do I have something new and important to add to the conversation? 
Or is my main motivation to either rail against someone else's views or to add my stamp of approval to what someone who shares my views said? If my answer to either one of those questions is yes, which it usually is, I write my response in my head, not on paper, not on Facebook, not on Instagram, not on Twitter. I write my response in my head. I mentally click publish. And the only person who ever sees my ranting and railing is me. And one of my friends does this, and she's been keeping what she calls the virus diaries. And she already has two journals full of thoughts and emotions that no one but her will see. When I believe that the situation does merit my response, instead of reacting and retaliating, I go out of my way to respond thoughtfully, respectfully, and intentionally. And I also ask myself, if I post this, will I lose or gain followers, subscribers, readers, or clients, depending on where you post it? If I post this, will I lose or gain followers, subscribers, readers, or clients? The answer is going to be yes to both of those questions. I'll gain some, I'll lose some. And then I take it a step further. Let's say, for example, I have 5,000 email subscribers and I send them a political rant that has nothing to do with my blogging bistro brand of helping people plan, protect, publish, and promote their writing. I ask myself, how many of my subscribers am I willing to lose? A hundred? A thousand? Five thousand? I carefully weigh the risk that I'm willing to take before I post, publish, or send. I'll give you a real life example here. As I told you earlier in this episode, the first writing platform that I developed was geared for prospective adoptive parents. My writing was all adoption all the time. But what if I had decided that I needed to address the hot button topic of abortion? Adoption and abortion are fairly closely related when you think about it in terms of a woman's choices when faced with an unplanned pregnancy. Abortion is a topic that triggers a tremendous amount of emotional frenzy, gut reactions, shame, shaming, anger, and name-calling by people on both sides of the issue. I could have easily jumped into that fray, but I opted instead to make my voice an important part of the adoption conversation as opposed to the abortion conversation. Even now, when I see people on social media calling each other stupid or ignorant for either supporting or not supporting abortion, I go back to my original questions. What is my motivation for feeling compelled to respond? Have I given my response the 24-hour test to give myself time to process and approach the topic from a less reactionary perspective and a more logical one? If I choose to respond, how can I do so thoughtfully, respectfully, and intentionally? What new and important information can I add to the conversation? If I go public with my response, how will that impact my brand negatively or positively? How big of a risk am I willing to take? I would love to hear from you on this topic. When you're on the receiving end of negative feedback, complaints, criticisms, rants, ridicule, or one-star reviews, how do you handle it? 
Do you get discouraged and give up? Do you retaliate with reactionary, emotionally loaded language? Do you attack their behavior and attempt to shame them? Do you show a willingness to listen to their side of the story and learn from them even though you vehemently disagree with them? If we're going to be honest with ourselves, I think that most of us would admit that our reactions are kind of a mix of all of those things. It's an area where I suspect we have some soul searching to do. And I really do want to know your thoughts on this. So please share your suggestions for how to handle rants, ridicule, and crushing criticism in the Professional Writer Podcast community. That's our Facebook group. We're here to support, encourage, challenge, and learn from each other. And you'll find a link to the group in the show notes for this episode at bloggingbistro.com. Also in the show notes, there is a link you can click to subscribe to the podcast. And I'll email you a notification to every new episode. They come out once a week. You can also listen via your favorite podcasting apps, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. It's on all of them. Just open the app and key in The Professional Writer. That's the name of the podcast, The Professional Writer. The show will pop up and you can save it to your favorites so that you won't miss an episode. Be sure to listen in next week when I will be following up with helpful tips on why and how to clean your email list. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk with you again next week.